if you uh, if you have your Bibles, go with me to Romans chapter twelve. Ah, look at that! There we go. That's good. That's good. That's good. Yeah, it's all right. We have a rookie on the lights. He's doing good though. Amen. All right. Well, I tell you what, guys. I hope you enjoy um, songs that we sing, and uh, not that I don't think you do. I just um, um, robust lyrics, particularly unique phrases. Uh, I think are just awesome. Um, a boot to the head, or a bite to the heel gets a boot to the head. It's got to be one of my favorite lines ever in about any song that we sing. Um, that's just awesome, right? I, and I mean, like, you know, it's awesome culturally because it's just kind of like unique. Like, we don't say it, it's just, but it's awesome theologically, right? It's that boot to the head. It's why we sit here today in relationship with God. Thank you. You read my mind. Uh, that was telepathic because I didn't ask for that, but that's awesome. Um, so it's, it's awesome theologically because we get to worship our God today because of that boot to the head. Um, so uh, as Rusty eloquently said, as we reflect this week, do not lose track. It, there, there's a reason for the resurrection, right? It, and it, it all started a long time ago uh, when God set out in His purpose, decreed to create the world, to bring into existence something that would be made into His image. And then that thing that was made into His image, mankind, Adam and Eve, chose to worship something else other than the one whom had created them. Uh, whether that was themselves or Satan or, or freedom or the knowledge of truth and evil or uh, good and evil and Whatever it was, they chose something other than God. Uh, and God's kingdom was established, and then God's kingdom um, was ruins, in ruins. And it wasn't by accident, but it was by God's plan. This was not a surprise to God. But the, what's cool is that the story could have stopped there, Right? Could have stopped right there. Like, that could have been our book. God created man, his kingdom. Man chose to worship something else, and now they're all headed to hell. And the story ends. But the story continues, right? The story continues. Like, I don't know if that is sinking into your head, but the story continues. And not just to save us from hell, but to save us to an eternal relationship with our Father. The one whom we are made in the image of. The one who knows us best. The one whom we can find the most treasure and delight in. And we miss those things when we settle, just as Adam and Eve did, we settle for other idols. So... With that said, let's um, jump into Romans, that's sermon at 1, and then we jump into uh, Romans chapter 12 where we've been for a little while. So, uh, here's the question. How do we live when you know and feel the mercy of God, 
when you know and feel the mercy of God, and that mercy of God is the source of your life, past, present, future. How do you live when the mercy of God is the source of your life, both past, present, future? How do we live? This mercy, obviously, or another thing we should note is, and most importantly, is obtained, this mercy was obtained by the death of His Son, the death that we will celebrate here shortly. We don't do these things that Paul's talking about in 12 simply because, or anything that, that, back up, anything that Scripture has commanded us or given us imperatives to do, we don't do these things simply because it brings unity or because God has commanded us to. We do them because they are true of the gospel, because they reflect what the gospel is. Right? So the gospel, the gospel is true in our life, then we will reflect the things of the gospel. So these things of loving each other and hospitality and so on and so forth that we're going to talk about today, we don't do them just because they bring unity, although they do. We do them because they're reflective of the one whom we're called to exalt, namely Jesus. We do them not because it's, it's just something that we do as Christians. We do them because the gospel has transformed us. And this is the question that Romans 12 answers. He answers the why we do this. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God. So by the mercies of God, all of this takes place. How we live, particularly in community with other, this is how we will, when we realize that, we, that all we really deserve is misery, but instead we get the enjoyment of God, this is how we live in light of that. Does that make sense? So instead of misery and destruction, we live in the mercy of God, and we live in light of that, and this is what is the result of it. We realize that anything we might be struggling with today, any sin or any persecution, is nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed to us in time. Romans 8.18, Paul says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, listen to this, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I think too many times we live as though that statement is not true. We live in, whether that's in sin or just discouragement or whatever, we live there because we don't really believe that that is true. That what I'm in now fails to compare to the glory that will be revealed. The king that we will once, that we will once again worship without the distractions of this world. Romans 12 is how you live when you know that this Christ and the joy that he offers has been paid for. With that said, let's read Romans 12. We'll start in verse 1, we'll end in verse 13, and then we'll kind of narrow into what we're going to talk about today more specifically. He says in verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable or your spiritual worship do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect going on 
For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, the prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. He goes on in verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, but hold fast instead to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. To our text for today, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And seek to show hospitality. Let's pray. Father, I recognize my weakness to proclaim your word. And Father, I just pray that, um, that you would take the word and that you would drive it home into the hearts of your people. Father, that, uh, that your Holy Spirit would do what only it can do. And uh, Father, change us, transform us. Please continue to exercise mercy on us. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So here's the plan. Here's the game plan for us, okay? I'll typically do this, but uh, today we're going to talk about verse 11 and verse 13. We're going to skip over verse 12. I'm going to come back to verse 12 next week, okay? So when we go from 11 and you, we go to 13, don't think that there's just been a mistake or Matt's lost his mind. That probably happened, but... Uh, we are going to go from 11, 13, and then we're going to come back next week to verse 12. So let's read the portion again for today. Verse 11, he says, Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. And then he goes on, Rejoice in hope, be patient, tribulation, be constant in prayer. And then again for today, Contribute to the needs of the saints. Seek to show hospitality. So the first thing we see is the intensity of, and that is, don't be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Don't be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit. We see the intensity of Paul's claim here, Paul's imperative to us. Again, not suggestions. These are written by God through Paul to proclaim something to us. And these are imperatives for the Romans and for us. Don't be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit. He says, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. So what's he saying? He's kind of saying the same thing two different ways. Negatively, he's saying, don't be slothful in zeal. Positively, he's saying, be fervent in spirit. Both basically saying the same thing. Now we have to take a look at what does he mean by zeal? What's this deal with zeal? Be, don't be slothful. We all got slothful, right? Like We got a good understanding of what slothful means. Okay. But zeal, what's he mean by zeal? So if you look the word up in, in, in a dictionary, it talks about eagerness, diligence, with haste, zeal. 
But we can't, just, we can't just plop one of those words out of there and go, okay, well, this is what he means. He means with haste or, or whatever. Because it's interesting, if you study the, the Gospels, the words for zeal there, spade, is used differently than it is with Paul. In the Gospels, it's used to say more like, well, he ran with haste. Or he went to the king with haste. Uh, when Paul gets to using it, Paul is more like on the idea of diligence. Like uh, eagerness, zeal. Paul, for Paul, this word is a necessary expression of the life of the Christian community. You get that? So Paul is not just suggesting to a couple people that you should look like this. He's saying to all of them, that you should have, and not, I'm sorry, you should not be slothful in zeal. He commands to not be slothful in, uh, in this. It is the gift of God, it, I'm sorry, it is a gift of God that must be developed, right? So he's talking about by the mercies of God, all of this is taking place as a gift of God, all these different things that are reflective of the gospel. It's something like all these other that must be developed, it is something that we can be weak in, but we must be strong and we must be diligent in. But what is it? What is he talking about? Be, don't be sloth, like, be zealous in what? Be zealous in what? Paul uses, or Paul's uses of this, and you can write these verses down, look at them later. But, but when he uses the word zeal, he talks about its power, this, this power of zeal should be seen in solid effort to maintain unity. We see that in Ephesians 4, verse 3. That this zeal should be used as solid effort to maintain unity. Another example, Galatians 2.10, 2 Corinthians 8, 7. That this zeal is to be used to aid other Christians. 2 Corinthians, I said 8, 7. Verse, so verse 7, verse 8, and verse 16. Paul also uses it to exercise, he talks about when you're exercising leadership within the church. So if you look back in the verses we were just leading or talking about, he says, if leading, lead with what? With zeal. Lead with diligence. So what is Paul talking about here to be diligent in? Well, I think if we read on, it's clear. Do not be slothful in zeal, but instead be fervent in spirit. So we're in the context ultimately of Worship. So in light of the mercies of God, this is the worship that takes place. This worship includes a sacrificed life, a life that is honor, honoring others, that is hospitable, that is here, sloth, is not slothful in zeal. In the context of this immediate sentence, he's talking about passionate in spirit. Fervent in spirit is kind of, basically the word fervent, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but it kind of comes from the idea of boiling or burning. Now, I think fervent is the best choice of word there for our context to understand what he's saying. Like boiling, oh, what's that? But, but the idea, it's not that we are to boil in spirit. The idea is that we are to be extremely passionate about this that he's talking about. That's his, his point. Fervent in spirit. Now there's a question on whether or not he's referring to our spirit or the Holy Spirit, and that's debated and debated all day long. But I think 
from what I have read, I think what he's inferring there, what he's, re- what he's referring there to, is that we are to burn in our spirit. We are to have be impassionate in our spirit, but that we understand from the context that this is from the spirit of God as well. So there's a question again whether or not this is our spirit, this is the Holy Spirit. I think it's both. But obviously it involves our spirit as well. So Paul is saying the opposite of this being slothful. He's saying instead, don't serve the Lord lazily or half-heartedly. Don't serve the Lord half-rear-ended. And you can translate that as you will. Say, do not serve the Lord this way. Instead, serving with passion, with a burning, with a boiling of your spirit. Passionate serving. So in the context, do not serve the body without diligence. Do not serve in giving without diligence. Do not use your spiritual gifts without zeal or without diligence or without eagerness, but instead do everything you do for Christ with diligence. Do everything you do with Christ with passion. Do everything you do for Christ with eagerness. Be zealous about it. It looks a little different than what we often see, right, in our service to the Lord. Often it looks like drudgery. It looks like dutifulness. Like It looks like we are uh, just fulfilling a task. And then we talk about getting burned out or worn out. And, and, and there's other reasons more than this that that might happen. But largely it's because when we serve, I don't think we serve with the diligence Paul's talking about here. We don't serve with the passion that Paul's talking about. This burning of our spirit to serve God in whatever capacity that looks like. And he's warning us that someone who has experienced the mercies of God, the only thing that makes sense because of that mercies of God in their life is that they serve with diligence and that we serve with a burning inside of us. A passion with deep affections for God. He says, don't be lazy in zeal. But I think what's, what's neat here is I think, I think Paul puts these kind of two phrases up next to each other to help protect from some misunderstandings. So if we just take the phrase, do not be lazy in zeal, and we don't have the other, I think that we could potentially take that to mean be pragmatic. Work, 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 and don't worry about your emotions or how you feel. Just do. The great vice or the great virtue is efficiency and hard work. Getting things done is what matters. I think we could take it and go that, but he, does, he doesn't stop there. He goes on and says, but be fervent in spirit. Again, this fervent is talking about this boiling or burning. Basically, it's talking about an intensity. The idea here is clearly not of mere hard work or efficiency or pragmatism. What's in mind here is the deep seat of our hearts. And the intensity of our passion for what God has called us to do. So the misunderstanding here could be that Christian life is one of heart passion. Right? So if we don't have the don't be slothful and zeal, but we have this burning, so, and all we have is a second phrase, the misunderstanding could be that Christian life is one of heart and passion. Or doing and efficiency are not crucial, but feeling, fervency, boiling in spirit, this is all that matters. But Paul puts both of them up there. 
I think that help us so that we don't misunderstand. But each of these phrases kind of balance the other one out. So here we have, I think, two great distinctions. If you mind me to, don't mind if I make fun of a couple denominations here for a second. But Baptists, we tend to do a whole lot of work, and we do it with very little passion. Charismatics tend to do a whole lot of nothing, but they do it with lots of passion. Okay? Both are wrong. Both are wrong. Christ sees the Pharisees going, doing a whole lot of work with very little passion. Like, where's their heart at it? Right? I mean, I was, I was, they might have a little bit of passion, but passion for the wrong thing. But you get my point. Their hearts are not in the right place. They're doing it for external purposes, not for internal purposes. Clearly, Paul wants us to be hard workers. Uh, if you're familiar with Jonathan Edwards, he wrote, when he was a young man, he wrote 70 resolutions. Uh, one of his was, resolved to live with all my might while I live. I think that's good. To live with all my might. Now, obviously not all, uh, if you know Jonathan Edwards, you put this in context, he's not saying like, with all the strength that I have, he's talking about, he knows, he understands God's work through him. But there is still our work and our diligence that Paul's commanding here clearly of us. We can't just sit back and let God take control of our life via osmosis. Like, we work, we're diligent, and we do this with passion and affection, a burning of our souls. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says this, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. If you look at that passage of context, Paul has just written a whole chapter on the resurrection of Christ as the ground for our own resurrection. And he draws out the implication of the king of life that we should, or the type of life that we should live. This is a life that's immovable, that's abounding in the work of the Lord. Abounding in the work of the Lord means do lots and lots of work for God, for the Lord. Abounding in this. The opposite of being lazy and doing nothing and being fruitless. This is what Romans 12, 11 is talking about. Jesus speaks terrible words of warning to those who settle in with lukewarm affections for him. So let's talk about this for a second. Revelation 3, 15 through 16. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. What is that you were either cold or hot? So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. So zeal, wholeheartedness, so diligence, wholeheartedness, eagerness, and passion matter when we serve God. So we see what the zeal is for. What's the focal point? What are, what's the intensity for? The intensity, he says in the next phrase, serve the Lord. The focus is serve the Lord. We've kind of touched on this a little bit already, but let's kind of dive into this a little bit further. So verse 11 gives the intensity and focus to the call for hope and joy and endurance and love that's going to come in verse 12. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. So the intensity is do not be slothful, you'll be fervent in spirit. The focus is serve the Lord. 
all the intensity has a focus. Serving Christ. This is what its passion's for. But the, the challenge is we are tempted to serve many different things. We are tempted to serve many things other than the Lord of which Paul is talking about here. So, just a couple examples, actually three examples. The first one is this, serve Jesus, not your appetites. Serve Jesus, not your appetites. Some of you are like, darn, I mean, i got to give up pizza tonight, you know, or lunch, so I can go pray. Uh, for some of us, that might mean, might be what that, how that applies. Let me read to you Romans 16. Paul says to us in verse 17, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Verse 18, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but they serve their own appetites. Now here Paul is clearly talking about someone teaching a doctrine contrary to the gospel that the Romans had been taught. Let's debate on exactly who it was, but the point is, is there was doctrine that was being taught wrongly, contrary to what they had been taught. The point, though, again, I guess the other point in the passage is that instead of, te- instead of serving God, Paul says that in doing this, they're serving their own appetites, their own desires, their own pleasures. You serve your appetites when you treat them as the most compelling offer of pleasure. So we need to think through our life. What is it that we treat as the most compelling offer of pleasure? What is it that we choose to serve instead of God? There's many things that we're saying in that statement when we do that. But if we're talking about appetites, we're talking about something that we are going to enjoy more than serving God. Serving Christ is contrasted here to serving our appetites. And remember, these appetites are not always bad things. In this passage, Paul's particularly talking about bad things. But from a broader scope here, we can say that obviously we can take good things and make them ultimate things. Therefore, they become sinful. They become idols. Um, and if we don't dig deep, then we'll never figure out what those idols are. That which we are serving instead of God. So you can be physically serving God and your heart be far from it and serving something else. So my point is, Paul is saying here, serve God. Now he doesn't talk about, in this immediate verse, he doesn't talk about you know, actions versus the heart and all this stuff, but we know from the broader context that, uh, that our idols can be things that are good that we turn into bad. And when we serve those instead of God, um, we sin. Because Paul's telling us to do all this passion and, and diligence in serving God, serving the Lord. So one thing we can say about serving Christ is that it means experiencing 
his worth and beauty and fellowship as more compelling and more desirable than what the appetites offer. Serving God should be more desirable, should be more pleasurable than serving our idols. And here's the deal, guys. If we don't dig deep into our hearts and pull these idols out, all we're going to end up doing is just polishing them off. Every time, we're just going to polish them a little bit more. So, serve Jesus, not your appetites. The second one, serve Jesus, not people. Serve Jesus, not people. Now you're saying, well, Matt, we were in a community series, and we're talking about serving each other, and now you're telling us not to serve people. Obviously, there's a sense in which we should serve people. But look what Paul says in Ephesians 6. He says, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Who do we serve when we're serving that brother or sister in Christ? We serve God. We serve God. The wrong way to serve man is to be a slave to his approval. Does that make sense? The wrong way to serve man is to be a slave to his approval. This is a great evil and bondage, I think, for many people, even myself sometimes. Many are a servant of the opinions of other people. Uh, we have to be careful of that because, I mean, some of us, it, it can be sneaky, right? It can be our kids. We're a slave to the approval of our kids. Our boss or a spouse. But in the gospel, we are freed from the fickle opinions of men. We care for one thing. Paul tells us to serve the Lord. We care for one thing. Does Jesus Christ, the Lord of heaven and earth, approve of what I'm saying and doing? That's what we serve. Now, a lot of that doesn't have to be some subjective thing. It can be very clearly, is Scripture, and what am I doing in line with, God word, with what God has objectively declared in His Word? So, we just serve Jesus, not man. Lastly, we serve Jesus, not the law. We serve Jesus, not the law. Romans 7, 6. But now, Paul says, we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. We serve Jesus, not the law. Paul contrasts here serving under the old written code and serving in the new life of the Spirit. So now, instead of focusing on the law for justification, Christ has come. We have died to this focus on the law, and we now serve the one who fulfilled the law. One thing this means, clearly, is that serving Christ is not following a new law. Now we follow a person who stands where the law once stood. And we'll just go make more comments on this. Now we follow a person who stands where the law once stood. Galatians 
Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is one who is hung, or hanged, hung, hanged on a tree. So Christ here, Paul says, is stood in our place. He became the curse for us. So serving this Christ is radically different from serving the law. So serving a demand and serving a divine person who meets the demand before he makes his demand is radically different. Does that make sense? I'm not supposed to ask that, but I like head nods. Okay. Yeah. Serving Christ, not the law. I'm sorry. Serving a demand and serving a divine person who meets the demand before he makes the demand is radically different. Okay? I'll say it one more time. Serving a demand and serving a divine person who meets the demand before he makes the demand is radically different. Okay? So Christ has demands of our life, but he meets the demand and then calls us to that versus serving the demands. So serving Christ, not the law, means believing who He is, the Messiah and Son of God, and believing what He has done, provided my perfect pardon and perfect righteousness. This service is a great liberty. This service is great. Now, let me make a few clarification points on that. This does not mean that the law is thrown away or ignored. It doesn't mean we just toss it to the side. I mean, if Christ came to fulfill it, then it's got to be something important, something valuable. But what it means now is that we don't view the law like us law. We view the law through the lens of the gospel, through the lens of Jesus, what he did on the cross. It means when we interact with the law, we must do do so through the gospel, or we become law seekers and thus we are condemned. There are clear aspects of the law that we should keep, moral laws, ethics, things like that. But we don't follow, here's the key guys, we don't follow them to get the gospel. We follow them because we have the gospel. Does that make sense? Those are very different things. We follow them because we have the gospel. We follow, right? Now, there's lots of little division points in there that we're not going to discuss. But in general, does it mean we throw the law out? But we can look to the law for guidance and things like that. But our first concern is to follow the one who fulfilled it. Then we look back through him at it. We look first to Christ, then we look through him to the law. That's our interpretive lens. Now that statement means a whole lot, but he is our interpretive lens when we look back to the Old Testament, to the law particularly. The heart question, though, of this text is this. What does your heart burn for with passion? What does it burn for with passion? Is it serving the Lord? If not, then you have an idol. And ultimately, when you do that, you're not believing that serving the Savior is as treasurable 
as that which you are treasuring. And I mean, understand that statement you're making, okay? I mean, and I'm preaching to myself, but when we're serving something other than God, we are saying, God, you are not as treasurable, as enjoyable, as worthy of my service as this item right here is, whether that's my, my sport, my family member, someone else's approval, my comfort, whatever. These things are more enjoyable than the creator of the universe. That's what you are staying when you do that. And that's what I say when I do that as well. So moving on, Paul continues. Uh, he says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. The first thing we see is giving and receiving, or the, what we see here, I guess in totality, is giving and receiving. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. He's talking about two things here. One, giving resources away. Giving, and then secondly, he's talking about bringing people in. And so, I, yeah, I did a little play on words there, but you get my point. He's receiving, not receiving as in it's about what I get, but receiving as in bringing people in. Bringing people in. Paul says, I appeal to you by the mercies of God, by the lav- and I guess if I could just rephrase some of this for you. Paul says, I appeal to you by the mercies of God, by the lavish contribution of God to your need, by the inexhaustible hospitality of God to bring you into his house, not as a guest, but as an adopted child, by those mercies that God has contributed to your need for salvation, for your need of redemption. And because God... And these mercies and inexhaustible hospitality for us. He says, I appeal to you by these mercies. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So let's talk about for a few moments. We're going to browse this pretty quickly. But how crucial are giving and hospitality? Like how central are these items to the gospel? How fundamental are these things? How important? How close to the heart? Giving, I think, is at the center of the gospel, not by itself but is very much at the heart of the gospel. Jesus, Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Let's read real quick. Do not lay up your, for yourself treasures on earth where moth and dust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What you do with your resources is where your heart is at. If you spend it on entertainment, then that's where your heart is at. If you spend it on security, then that's where your heart is at. Then the early church realized that all of their possessions were not theirs but God. Let's look at Acts 4, verse 34. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Hmm. So Paul also taught this to all of his churches. Titus 3, verse 14. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good work so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. 
Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. If you hear someone say hilarious giver, it's not what that means. Okay, if you ever heard a preacher say that, that's terrible exegesis. Ephesians 4.28 says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Not working to have. Guys, hear this. Not working to have, but working to give. Not working to have, but working to give. We work oftentimes to have, not work to give. Randy Alcorn says this, God prospers me not to raise my standard of living, but to raise my standard of giving. Then Paul taught them in the process to be disciplined and methodical in, in this generosity. Not spontaneous and impulsive. Right? But disciplined and methodical. 1 Corinthians 16, 1-2. He says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you should put, aside, put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. So Paul's discipline and regularity went hand in hand with the joy, of course, that he's talking about here in Romans 12. So giving is clearly commanded of us, sharing our resources. You say, what is he talking about? Okay, so we're giving our resources to what? Is he talking about tithing here? Is he talking about giving money to the church? Is that what Paul's talking about? Not really. But he's not excluding that. But that's not his primary, that's not, his, that's not the sole purpose of what he's, or even the main purpose of what he's talking about. Tithing is discussed elsewhere, but what Paul's talking about here is simply taking care of needs within the body. Meeting needs. Now, obviously the body can establish ways of doing this. Paul doesn't dictate the way this has to be done. He's just saying to do it. So some churches do benevolence funds where they bring up, they collect an offering, and then when someone has a need, and they give that, so on and so forth. But I, I like we have a benevolence fund, but we don't collect stuff. We, uh, we have some money in there for, for different needs and such. And, but, but that I don't. I, I'd rather us not. And it's just speaking as as pastor and leader, and uh, like that seems very disconnected and programmatic uh, and easy. What's hard is for us to dive into each other's lives so that we know when needs arise, because some people are afraid to ask, which they shouldn't be. They should be free to ask. But we know what's going on so that we can see needs and we can meet needs. That takes more work, right? Uh, But it's also more personal and I think more in touch with what Paul has in mind here. And in the context, he's talking about being involved in each other's lives so much so that we would see these needs. That we don't just send them to some dude who's in charge of a collection of money. Again, not that that's wrong. But I think we should have this engagement in each other's lives that we know it. So that it becomes less of a program and more of our DNA. So I do have to make a few comments here, though. So what about giving to the church? All right, what about giving to the church? I wanted to read to you something that Paul says here. Paul's talking about meeting needs. All right, so Paul, Philippians 4, 15 through 18. He says, And you Philippians yourselves know 
that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more, and I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Now clearly, here Paul has devoted his life to gospel ministry. Now Paul, yeah, we talk about Paul being a tent maker and, and, and supplementing income from outside, but it's clear that Paul has devoted his life to gospel ministry. Now, obviously, this is descriptive, not prescriptive. So Paul's not telling us the way it has to be, but he's telling it, obviously giving us an example of the way it can be. God has positioned him in a place, I believe, of dependence upon the resources of the body. And we, I have to say, have chosen a variation of that here. Again, not because Paul has, says it has to be that way. We don't have to have full-time pastors. That's not what Paul's talking about, but it is an option. And it is something that's okay. It's something that we see modeled for us by Paul. Um, you know, not to make this about me or about Rusty, but just so that we're clear, I, Rusty and I have positioned ourselves in such a way that we can give greater amounts of time to kingdom work than we would be if we had a full-time job. Um, and I do think this kingdom work goes beyond renovation church, for the record. In doing so, we trust God, not renovation church, but God to provide for us. Well, the primary way that God is doing this, though, I think is through the local body, which benefits mostly from the kingdom work of, of uh, our, your elders. So I just want to encourage you this. This is the whole point in doing this. To encourage you that one of the ways that you meet needs is through your regular giving. Okay? That is a big one. I want to encourage you in that. Now, the church is not in a point where it needs money right now or we're struggling for tithing. So this is not coming from any motives other than showing you an immediate application of the text and to encourage your guys' hearts in that. But, like I said before going into that, Spiel, that's just one way that we meet needs of the saints. All right, it's just that Rusty and I don't, all right, all right, we need this and we need this, we need this. Those things are kind of obvious. I think some of those are kind of spelled out. But that's just one way. And let me encourage you this. If that's the only way, I don't know that you see the big picture. If that's the only way that you meet needs of other people is by putting a check in the envelope, I want to encourage you that that is a very small view. But you should be engaging each other in your guys' lives so that you can see what the needs are of those around you. And just not, and, and I would encourage you to stop assuming that everybody's just okay. We live in an individualistic society where we don't want other people to know we're struggling, so on and so forth. So we need to be open to seeing these things and have our eyes clear so that we can see them. So, meeting the needs of the saints. And one of the ways that we saw that was 
Paul, his needs being met as he is ministering to the gospel and dedicated his life to that. So, last point here. Pursue hospitality. Pursue hospitality. Now, seeking to show hospitality in Paul's context was more than just inviting people in for a meal. Right? I mean, first we need to see that. When Paul talked about hospitality, it was inviting people in to stay when they needed a place even for a season of time. In times of, oftentimes, official persecution, it was dangerous. And this would have been the meaning for the early church. Now, again, that's descriptive, not prescriptive. But the what we should be doing... I'm, I, yeah, it's descriptive, not prescriptive. What we should be doing is being hospitable and inviting people in. And for each of us, that's going to look a little bit differently. But one quick note, the idea here is to pursue it. The idea is not just to do it when the opportunity comes. You got that? Like, it's not just, oh, someone's coming to my house today, I think I need to be hospitable. Or I'm around a bunch of people, so I need to be hospitable. No, he's saying to pursue it, to go after it, to jump at opportunities, to look for opportunities. Now, again, we're talking about how close is this to the heart of, those, of that which is important. Uh, think about this with me. We'll read through these verses real quick. When Jesus sends the 12 apostles out to minister in his name, Matthew chapter 10 verse 9, he says, Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. So hospitality to God's messengers was built into the mission from the start. We see hospitality as a part of this when God initially sends out the twelve. Then Jesus underlines the glory of hospitality in chapter 10 verse 40 and listen you'll be familiar with this verse whoever receives you receives me and whoever receives me receives him who sent me i don't think it's surprising then to see that jesus would make hospitality one of the things that christ counts at the judgment day as evidence of our love for Christ. Hospitality is something that Christ counts as evidence of our love for Christ. Matthew 25, 30, verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. quick note from Paul. Paul includes hospitality as a qualification for eldership. Therefore, an overseer, sorry, 1 Timothy 3.2, therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, hospitable. So we see here clear, I think, that giving lavishly and loving guests is near the heart of what it means to walk as a Christian. Giving, receiving, Bringing people in. 
Let me say this. Hospitality is not just about opening your homes. It's about receiving, bringing people into your life. Um, I'm going to make a statement. You may not like me after I say this statement, but some of you, and myself included, can be some of the most uninviting people. The way you conduct yourself is simply uninviting. Or the way you are when people are in your home is simply uninviting. Now we can talk, here's the deal, we can talk all day long about how to greet people at the door, how to have a warm smile, how to welcome people with a hug, get people's places to sit. And we do need to talk about those things. But there is much more important things, I think, to discuss, and that is the heart issue. I think there's a number of possibilities when it comes to the heart. Maybe you don't know and love the hospitableness of our Father. Maybe you don't understand the hospitality which our God has shown us. Maybe you have an idol of comfort. So when people enter your home, they are trampling on your comfort area. I think we struggle with this because our narrative is too small. Like We just look at life as just, just this little, little small thing, and God's saying, no, 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 it's much bigger than that. When we do these actions, it reflects on something much bigger than who we are. It reflects on God. It reflects on the gospel. It says something that is untrue. But think about it conversely. When we are hospitable, when we do take care of what is he saying? He's saying it reflects something that's true of God. And when we are inhospitable, then we say God has not been hospitable to us. When we are not giving, we are saying that God has not been givers to us. Conversely, when we show the world our hospitality and love and our giving, we are saying that we have been some of the most, been the people who have received the most giving and the most hospitality. So, uninviting or lack of hospitality is not just a pragmatic thing where we need to make these fixes and tweaks. We can do those, but we first have to get down to what's causing that in our hearts. Why do we respond that way? Why is not our natural instinct to invite people in and welcome people, not just as guests, but as people in our homes, at our tables? Why? Something inside here. Something in here. So what prevents giving and hospitality? I want to encourage you guys, we're going to talk about that this week in house gatherings. What prevents it? So I want you to be thinking about this. You want to write down something. Think about what prevents giving and hospitality. What prevents it in your life? But I want you to stay away from pragmatism. Stay away from, I don't have money, or I don't have the kind of home to do that, or so on and so forth. Yes, those have a place and a role, but not as primary and foundationally. What is primary and foundational is what's inside here. Last couple thoughts. How do we break free? How do we break free? How do we break free to be givers that God's called us to? How do we break free... To, uh, to experience or to give this hospitality God's called us to? How do we live in the liberty and joy of giving and receiving? The answer is this. 
The answer is this, that Jesus Christ died and rose again to make certain that for all who trust in Him, the all-powerful, all-knowing God would be lavishly generous and lovingly hospitable to us every day forever. How do we break free? We know the gospel. We submit to the gospel. We see Christ as the one who bought for us God's lavishly love or giving and His eternal hospitality to us. This is what verse 1 is referring to. By the mercies of God, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Because Jesus has done this, you do this. This is the only thing that makes sense. It, it does not make sense for us to be inhospitable. It doesn't make any sense. It makes sense if you're not a follower of Jesus. Then it makes sense. It does not make sense if you've been transformed by the mercies of God. This is a reasonable act of worship. Romans 8.32. Paul says this, And he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Philippians 4.19, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 9.8, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Our God is so gracious and hospitable to us. To not just bring us into our home to give us a place to sleep, but give us a place to live forever. And when we know and see that and love that truth, the only thing that makes sense is that it is then reflected in our lives as image bearers of the one who is hospitable and gracious and giving to us. Last big thought, giving freely and opening our homes displays marvelous truths about our Savior. Kind of hit on this, but a couple last thoughts. One, the suffering of the saints will be relieved or at least diminished when we contribute to the needs of the saints. Secondly, what happens is the glory of God is displayed. Matthew 5.16 In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. So just again, reaffirming that when we do these actions or lack thereof, we're reflecting something of God. We are making a statement. And think about it. When we are hospitable, we are giving, we are saying something that is gloriously true of God. We get to do that. Understand. We get to do that. Number three, more thanksgiving to God is unleashed when we contribute to the needs and we're hospitable. 2 Corinthians 9, 12. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. This is the result. This is what's happening because of this. Fourthly, our love for God and His love in us is confirmed. When we do these things, 1 John 3.17 But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Again, it doesn't make sense. John's saying, I don't get it. 
How does God's love abide in him when he does this? But instead, ah, God's love abides in him when he reflects these things that are true of God. Finally, we lay up treasure in heaven. When we do these things, when we serve the Lord, when we are giving to the, contributing to the needs of the saints, to the needs of fellow believers, we are hospitable. We lay up treasure in heaven. Luke 12, 33-34. So sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. This is where yours is. Is your heart... Let me ask you this question. Is the wellspring of your being, as the Proverbs tells us, your heart? Is it in serving affectionately? Passionately? Is it in giving lavishly? Is your heart in receiving, bringing people into your lives graciously? Is this where your heart's at or is it other places. If it's other places, then it's not God's heart. And you're not reflecting God's heart. Let's reflect God's heart. Right? We get to do this. Understand this, that we get to have our hearts in the right places. It's not something that we do out of duty. It's something that we get to do out of joy that we're going to talk about next week. But I know it's a little bit late, but I want us to take this time. I want us to sing one last song. Because I want to give you guys' hearts and minds an opportunity to respond. To respond. That you would ask God immediately upon hearing His word, what are you requiring of my heart and my mind? What would you have me do? So I want to pray for us and then we'll worship together. We get to do this. Father, thank you for lavishing your love upon us. Father, thank you for making it possible for us to experience this truth of your word. Father, that we don't have to look at this from a distance. I wish that we had it, but we can have it by the grace of your Son and the work of Him on the cross. Father, um, I just pray that as your people in these next few moments have an opportunity to respond to your word, I pray that you would um, give them grace, that you would give them mercy, that you would show them that and show myself, Father, that Whatever else it is that we're serving, that none of it is worthy to be served, but only you. And Father, that your grace and mercy abounds. Father, I pray that you wrap us up in that. That we would experience your hospitality like maybe we've never experienced before or never recognized it before. Father, that we would understand your giving and sacrifice today like we've never understood it before. that we might be more clear 
image bearers of you. And Father, we love you. Father, I pray that you would speak in these next few moments. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.